0: Welcome everybody. Um, as most people in this room know, I have the world's greatest job. And one of the great things in the world's greatest job is I get to introduce people. And it's usually pretty easy. Today it's harder because it turns out that Colonel Kemp is not a rabbi. Okay, does not Does not observe Sabbath and I think isn't even Jewish. Is this true? Arguably. Okay. <laughs> so, all my usual introductions don't work. So, who is Colonel Kemp and why is he here? The answer is Colonel Kemp is a hero. Okay? Three definitions for what it means to be a hero. I just looked it up. Okay? Number one, in, in opposite order. A hero is a person of superhuman qualities... An often semi-divine origin. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's not the one I was thinking of. Okay? Next. The chief male character in a book, play, or movie. Close. One day. Okay, one one day. day. But what's really a hero? A person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. That's who Colonel Kep is. I ask myself, every day a person gets up, and here's the choice that we face. Okay? You could do the thing that's easy and popular and in vogue and for which you'll be admired, or you could do the right thing. And I think of Colonel Kemp as a guy who gets up every day and picks the unpopular position and gets attacked for it and insulted personally and professionally, but goes about his business because he <coughs> believes that the point he's advocating and the way he sees the world is what we need to do and what we need to hear. It's an incredible honor for us to host Colonel Kemp. He is an honorary alumni of our yeshiva, despite. I have like a really inappropriate joke. Sheer bees in the back. So. Okay, it has to do. Okay, I can't tell you. Without any of those things,
1: we're incredibly
0: proud of our relationship with him. I can't explain exactly how it came about, but it's something that we ter- we, we value incredibly, and he's all yours.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, well, first of all, I want to apologize for being a mere goid. Um, <laughs> But but I am, in case any of you ever need it, I'm a very, very accomplished Shabbat boy. So I can operate your elevator or room key for your hotel or whatever you want. Anything you're not allowed to do, I can do it. I can't pour wine for you, obviously, in case I poison you in the process. Um, I I, uh, um, I, I quite often speak to Jewish groups in, in high schools and universities and so on. Um, And most places I go, apart from those Jewish places, I I have some kind of an idea in my head what I'm going to say, but I never do when I speak at institutions like this, because I know that you all will interrupt me and uh, contradict me and have a different opinion and all the rest of it, so if I go to a Jewish high school or anything, I I just don't have a script, and I just speak a a few things, and then I expect to be diverted to something else, (coughs) I'm going to say make a few remarks, but please feel free to to, to exercise your God-given Jewish right to um, to have five opinions each on every subject. <laughs> um, how long have we got, Ellie? Could um, you dial in, Mr. say Again? Um, we, we we'll try for two thirty, but you can
0: really go until five. To
1: Five o'clock, okay, good. I love the sound of my own voice, you see. But uh, I'll say a few things and then I'm happy to take any questions or whatever. Um, And I don't like to uh, come to a place like this, particularly my yeshiva, which I regard this as being. Um, I don't like to come empty-handed. So for the person with the best question or the best comments, I've got a special prize to present to you, yeah. No, it's not a signed copy of the Torah, but it's the next best thing, almost. Um, and if you don't like it, I believe you can uh, dispose of it via eBay quite easily. Um, okay. Uh, I, I, when I was in Afghanistan, I was I command British forces in Afghanistan in two thousand and three, when we were winning that conflict at the time, and mainly because I was there. Um, I am a modest man, as you'll you'll see. Um, But I, I went to a Independence Day ceremony in the American Embassy. uh, Sorry, in the uh, Afghan Foreign Ministry for Afghan Independence Day, and the U.S. Ambassador in Afghanistan made a speech, and he um, he said one of the things that we have, you know, our great countries, the United States and Afghanistan, we have many things in common. I was trying to wrap my brain, think what those were, but anyway, he came up with one. He said. um, we both share, having gained independence from the British, the evil British. And uh, he apologised to me later on, after the uh, thing, he thought he might have insulted me, which he did, but I'm used to that for Americans. Um, And, and of course, this country is another country that celebrates its independence from the British. In fact, there are very few countries in the world that don't celebrate their independence. (laughs) Um, Because we have once had the greatest empire the world's ever seen. I know you're not supposed to be proud of that. Uh, And and the British Empire did some bad things, but also did some extremely good things around the world. Um, But anyway, the reason I'm making this point is because we, for the first time in our history, two days ago, celebrated our own independence day. We gained independence from the evil empire of the European Union, uh, which has been oppressing us. Yes, thank you. Are there, are there any French people here? Any French? No one admits to it. No French. Sure? Any Germans? Really? We're all German Right. I thought I thought we might have someone like you in the room. Um, yeah. I just I, I just like to know who I'm going to insult during the course of my remarks. And unfortunately, won't be too many after the no French and Germans here. But. Uh, I think, you know, the fact that Britain has left the EU... I'm I'm not going to talk about that today because it's not really a core subject for your interest, I think, but I'm more than happy to take any questions if you've got questions on it. What it does, I think... Britain and Israel has a very, very close shared past. Very, very close. Probably probably actually closer in reality than any other two countries in the world, and I include the United States in that, with Israel. Um, Not all good, but close. Not all good. But... uh, um, the and today, and I'm going to speak a little about the historical context as well. But today, Britain and Israel um, politically are very close, and, and and we are very supportive of Israel. And if you watch the BBC, obviously you wouldn't believe that. But then my advice is don't watch the BBC. I never do, particularly when I'm on it. Um, but uh, in fact, to, 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 I think to adapt a a, um, a quote of someone like. Not Karl Marx, one of the Marx brothers. I forget which Marx it was. Um, he said, so "I, I would never, never join a, what Groucho. Groucho. You know what I'm going to say as well. I'd never join a club that would allow me to be a member, and equally, I would never watch a television program that had me as a guest on it. Um, but if you if you follow the BBC and the rest of the British media and, and probably some media out here, you would never think it. But we are very close, and we." Um, when there's, for example, when there's a vote in the United Nations Human Rights Council, or the United Nations General Assembly, or one of these other bodies on Israel, condemning Israel for something, the latest condemnation for war crimes, um, Britain is on Israel's side. Now, that doesn't always manifest itself in a vote against the motion and in favour of Israel. It sometimes, and more often than not, is an abstention, which effectively is an act of cowardice. But you shouldn't look at it quite like that in relation to Britain, because what Britain does, it it negotiates within the other EU countries who want to vote for the anti-Israel motion um, and gets them all... Because they like to vote as a consensus. They like to vote the same way in the EU. So Britain persuades them all to abstain rather than Britain will vote for Israel and all the other EU countries, or many of them, will vote against. So the outcome is you end up with far fewer countries in the United Nations voting against Israel than you otherwise would. It may be a small thing, but I think it is sometimes quite an important thing. Um, That is something that's going to be lost, I believe, when we leave the EU, because we won't have that influence anymore. Uh, And and therefore, I think we'll find more anti... I mean, EU is hostile to Israel, we all know that. Um, But we'll see more overt hostility, I think, from the EU after Britain... Well, I say after we left, we have left now. so from now on, uh, and, but I think we've also, gonna, you know, there may be an advantage as we see a slightly uh, in, improved public position uh, from Britain towards Israel. And that's also partly, of course, because we need Israel, trade with Israel really, more than we have before, because we're going to suffer in trade terms with the EU. Britain and Israel have um, some of the finest, uh, some of the greatest trading relations there are. But why do I say Britain and Israel are are two of the probably Britain's probably closer to Israel than any other country in the world? Anyone, any thoughts on that? Any any suggestions why Britain? (coughs) I might think Britain, apart from the fact that I'm hugely biased, that Britain might be closer than, say, America or France or Germany or any of these other countries. Anyone? Uh, Who's British here in this room? Anyone? No, you're going to admit that? Okay. Who's American? <laughs> oh dear I'll be careful what I say about America I think. <laughs> Who? Australian? <coughs> yeah. Any more Australians? Yeah. Melbourne? Yeah. 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 I thought I'd recognise you um, <laughs> Canada? There's only uh, two so I can actually be quite abusive about Canada <laughs> The most boring race in the world <laughs> um, <laughs> Having said that, I did serve. He's got. I can see that look. That look is not a good one. Um, I did serve. One of the finest generals I ever served under was a Canadian in Afghanistan. He was a fantastic man, one of the bravest officers I ever met, and a very, very capable man. But uh, he was the exception for Canadians. Um, so I can compliment you on one hand and insult with the other. But uh, yeah. So no, no one's got any thoughts about why I might think about the closeness of Britain and yeah. I mean, like you said... The smart-arse at the back, sorry. <laughs> the, Brit- the British Empire was ginormous,
0: so Britain became like everyone's godfather. And they are just like watching over them, even though they're still independent now, still watching over them. Yeah, we, we've got your interests at heart. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean,
1: the, 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 that is sort of partly what I'm getting at, really, that... Um, you, have you, has anyone here not heard of the Balfour Declaration? Anyone not heard of the Balfour Declaration? Anyone know what it means? Yeah. You, you don't know what it means? No, I do know. Tell me. You said don't. What does it mean? It was the letter that Lord Balfour wrote to
0: Baron Edmund de Rothschild, promising for the British Empire's support for close settlement of Palestine with the view of establishing a Jewish national
1: home. Ah. So you do know what it means. <laughs> do you know what font it was typed in? been typed
0: in a serif
1: font. I hope so. Whatever that is. Um, but uh, yeah, and it was it was it was a it was the foundational document, I think, of um, of the modern state of Israel in many ways, and it and a lot of people think that was a, a sort of imperial British. Prescription that you know we just said that and that's it. But actually, it wasn't. It was uh, before uh, um, uh, Balfour wrote it to Rothschild. He gained the support of most of the other major countries in the world that we weren't fighting at the time, and include that includes the United States of America, Japan, China, um, and you know obviously it didn't include Germany because we were giving them a good thrashing at that time. Um, France, of course, it included. So it was it was a, it was organised by Britain, but it was basically. The, the sort of precursor to their League of Nations um, resolution, which essentially said the same thing, and that, and that was that was foundational, really. But without, but there was something else. There was something else around that time that occurred, um, which was, I would say, at least as important, possibly more important, as the Balfour Declaration. Does anyone know what I'm thinking about? Yeah, you, you're the Australian, yeah, from Melbourne. Yeah. What school did you go to in Melbourne? Mount Scopus. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. yeah it's cool place. Dodgy place. <laughs> um, A lot of criminals come out of there, are not they? Yeah, Mind you, we, we sent lots of criminals down there in the past. So. <laughs> so, Sorry, you were saying?
0: Um, I would say there were World War I British activities in, uh, I guess, Ottoman Palestine.
1: British, what, what activities? Uh, Dishing like, out onion soup and stuff? No, nah, uh, I
0: guess the war efforts. Right, fighting. Yeah, and also the Jewish brigades in, yeah. inside the... Um,
1: British army. Right, yeah, good, absolutely. So basically, Britain fought a defensive campaign against the Ottoman Empire from 1915 to 1918. And in that campaign, I say Britain, I include Australia as well, because it was a British empire for Australian um, New Zealanders and Indians and some others. There were even a few French here, I think. We don't talk about that. Um, But the French are our natural enemies. But... um, we 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 fought and defeated the Turks over that period of time. Am I slurring my speech? No. Oh, that's kind of you, thank you. Vodka. you <laughs> are. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh, and we kicked them out of this country. They they ruled. They had their empire ruled Palestine for many many years. Um and we kicked them out at the cost of 168,000 British casualties and that includes the Battle of Besheba which was a famous Australian battle um, one of the last and most effective cavalry charges in the history of warfare Um, and the Battle of Jerusalem fought around these mountains, around these hills here um, which saw Jerusalem liberated from the Turks in December 1917 just after the Balfour Declaration was made Um, and you mentioned the Jewish Legion The Jewi- does anyone here know about the Jewish Legion yeah what about it tell me about it, uh, it where are you from
0: New York Teane- New Jersey New York I've heard of it it's
1: a good place Oh, yeah. but go on <laughs> um, it, it, it
0: was an old Jewish Legion that volunteered to fight on um, to fight for uh, the British Empire. right the
1: the against what the Irish yeah um, correct the- they they were formed in nineteen seventeen of volunteer Jewish volunteers from Palestine, from Britain, from Russia, from the United States of America, and various other countries as well. I think there were some Australians in it, I'm pretty sure there were, and South Africans and so on. Any South Africans here? Oh, okay. One. Just what, are you the only one? In the whole yeshiva? No, there are others. There are others, if be bothered, yeah, it can be bothered to come. coming tomorrow. I'll be gone. But um uh, so so they 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 were formed in nineteen seventeen in London and they were part of the British Army and they were the first formed Jewish fighting force since the Maccabees. Which was an incredible thing. Part of the British Army. When they left when they left London to come and fight out here, they went they marched through the streets of London to Waterloo Railway Station where they got the train from Waterloo down to Southampton and got a ship which brought them I think it was via Egypt, out to here. And um, as they marched through the city of London, they were led by the most famous, one of the most famous British regiments, the Coldstream Guards, which was playing their regimental march, which was the hartikva. And they had on their shoulders the Star of David. Their cap badge had a menorah with the word Kadima in it, which for you non-Hebrew speakers means forward. Um, pretty fluent myself. Um, and... Uh, and they, they, their regimental colours were blue and white, so they had all basically all of the kind of trappings of the what then later became the state of Israel. Um, they came over here, they fought at the Battle of Megiddo, and they um, they followed the as, as the Turks retreated across into um, into Jordan, they followed them, and, uh, and and they were very effective, very effective fighting organisation. They were led by a Christian British officer called Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Patterson. Um, and he, he was one of the very few there were hardly any Christians in this thing it was almost all Jews he was pro- possibly the only one I'm not sure uh, Zev Jabotinsky was his kind of number two uh, who I'm sure you know about and Patterson after the war after the first world war went back well, he didn't go back he, he, for some reason he went to the United States of America and lived over there um, and he became very close with uh on Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister's father, who was a historian as I'm sure you're aware um, and so <coughs> close that Benzion Netanyahu named his first son after Jonathan Patterson so it was Jonathan or Yoni Netanyahu, the hero of Entebbe, named after a British Christian officer, who was also his godfather I don't know what the equivalent is, is there an equivalent of godfather in the Jewish religion? The Jew- Jewish religion? What is it? Does it have a name? Okay, well, it was the equivalent, and he gave him a. a, The Prime Minister has a silver cup in his house here in Jerusalem, a silver cup that was presented by Jonathan Patterson to Yoni Netanyahu on his uh, whatever equivalent is of a christening. I know he wasn't christened. Um, What? Probably, almost certainly. Um, and uh, And so you know that 's just another example of, of the, the closeness of relation. When Jonathan Patterson died, his last wish was to be buried here among the soldiers he commanded in battle in Palestine in one thousand nine hundred and eighteen but it was one thousand nine hundred and forty seven when he died, and it wasn 't feasible, so he was buried in Los Angeles, which is where he was living at the time um, and now, or two years late, two years ago, two years ago, his remains were exhumed and reburied in uh, a military burial site. Uh, I think it's somewhere around Netanya. I went. I was at this ceremony where he was buried, which was presided over by the Prime Minister of Israel, buried among the soldiers that he commanded. Um, and after that, we went through various kind of ups and downs between Britain and Israel. Yeah. You said you chime in. Yeah, I know you will. Um, I know you will.
0: How should we view the Balfour Declaration and of two previous agreements, being the Mandate Agreement in 1915 and the Sykes-Picot? Later
1: later. How should you view them?
0: Yeah, I've, yeah.
1: What? <coughs> sure, you you turn it. You answer it. It's a thirty-minute
0: thing. You, should, you, should, you shouldn't pay so much attention to
1: those I think. I think. I mean, the, the Balfour Declaration. I, I think, in itself, if you just, if it was just if it existed on its own, it would just be a bit of paper. But I think it then became the basis of um, the. Uh, the um, the San Remo Declaration made in, in 1920, I think it was, which was kind of part of the post-war settlement, which directed Britain to then, you know, the League of Nations effectively directed Britain to um, to to make the Jewish national homeland in Palestine a reality. So, as a kind of foundational document, I think it's important. But um, there's lots of controversy about it, and and as you say, sykes Pico and various other. Agreements and and decisions that were made at the time, (coughs) but um, the uh, in the period after that, we then had um, a time when the Jewish population here in Palestine were uh, were came under huge attack um, by Arabs, of course. And you may have heard. Have you heard of the name Ord Wingate? Yeah. Anyone not? Ord Wingate was a. You have. Yeah. Where are you from? Uh, Israel. Oh, you're in Israeli? Yeah. Okay. Um, Ord Wingate was a uh, a, Briti- a again a British Christian officer who was serving out here in Palestine with the British Army, and contrary to British military policy at the time, which was not to assist the Jews in the in this fight they were having with the Arabs, he trained the Jewish um, communities out here to defend themselves, rather than just wait till the Arabs came to them. Trained. <coughs> raiding parties to go out at night and get the arrows before they came and got them which again became a, a sort of foundational um, doctrine of the IDF um, and <coughs> uh, Ord Wingate was such a um, influential character over here and there are various roads <coughs> named after him, there's a, the Wingate Institute isn't there, um, the Sports Institute and um uh, the, the David Ben-Gurion, who incidentally David Ben-Gurion was a private in the Jewish Legion in the British Army in the First World War but when he became Prime Minister he said that if Wingate hadn't been killed he was killed in the Second World War old Wingate, if he hadn't been killed he would have become the first Chief of Staff of the IDF so you would have had, according to Ben-Gurion, a British Christian officer as the first Chief of Staff of the IDF. Wingate was killed in a plane crash in Burma, he was a general at that point um, and he was flying in a plane with a bunch, about three Brits and, I don't know, half a dozen Americans. They, they crashed. They couldn't separate the remains, so they decided to bury them all in one place, which was um, Arlington, Arlington Military Cemetery outside Washington. Um, so that, those were good times, I think, as far as the Brits were concerned for the Israelis. But then we had the period immediately before and during the Second World War where we, under Arab pressure we prevented immigration of Jews from Europe into Palestine, which probably meant that, well, didn't probably definitely meant that tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of Jews who could have escaped the Holocaust and come here instead were trapped in Europe because we wouldn't let them in. And that I think is one of the greatest shames of Brit- that Britain's ever had was to deny um, opportunity for Jews to leave Europe and come here and it was effectively Britain playing a part in the Holocaust. Not wittingly, not because they they knew what was about to happen or they wanted it to happen, but they did nevertheless. And then after the war, we've had a lot of... Sorry? So, there's also the, the, the
0: white books that went before.
1: The white papers, yeah. Yes. They, that, those white papers were what restricted immigration into Israel. That, that was the basic the, the laws that were created, or the regulations created that prevented it happening. So you're right, it's, and it's all part of the same thing. But then after the war, um, our relations began to improve. I mean, actually, the, 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 the Arab legion, the Jordanians, which invaded Israel in 1948, were led by a serving British general, believe it or not. Um, and we did everything we could to actually make life difficult for the, the Jews as the war broke out. Today, we have a much different relationship. Um, we conduct joint operations. Our intelligence services, Mossad and MI6, we, um, the army, the armed forces conduct joint training and, and share joint procedures for the first time ever. Actually, last year, for the first time in history, IDF air, aircraft exercised in the UK F 35s together with Americans and I think Canadians, and certainly Americans and British exercised in the UK. Um, I've, I've got personal experience of dealing with. Um, of of Britain's relations with Israel. Just to give you a couple of examples. My last job in the army before I retired, I retired in 2006 from the army. My last job was to... to, I I was the intelligence advisor to the Prime Minister on international terrorism. And, of course, I worked very closely with Mossad in that capacity, with a Mossad station in London and over here in Israel. Um, And on one occasion... uh, During my time there, I was sent out to Afghanistan to take command of British forces in Afghanistan in 2003, and one thing I immediately realised is that the first time I've ever had to command troops faced with the threat of suicide terrorism, I dealt with every other form of terrorism except for suicide terrorism, I didn't know how to deal with it, so who did I ask? The Israelis, they were the experts at the time, still are, and I spoke to the head of Mossad station in London and said to him, can you please get hold of the defence attaché in your embassy and get him to come and see me and tell me how the Israelis deal with it. And he said, no, I will not. And I sort of was a bit taken aback. I I said, well, I've bought you many a cup of coffee. I've shared lots of secrets with you I shouldn't have shared. He said, I'm going to do better than that. And he sent to Israel. He didn't just get the guy from the embassy. He sent to Israel for Mm -hmm. brigadier general who was commanding a division in the Golan Heights who was deemed to be the IDF's number one expert on suicide terrorism, brought him to London two days later. He and I were sitting in a hotel lobby in West London. He was talking, I was writing, and that became his, his advice to me became British military policy on handling suicide terrorism, which then became NATO policy on handling suicide te- te- terrorism and has saved the lives of many British, American, Canadian, Australian, various other soldiers who have been fighting in places like Afghanistan and Iraq against Islamic terrorism. Just that one act by that extremely generous Israeli to bring a general, their number one expert, over to London saved many lives. In 2005, we had our 9 11, which was, everyone heard of it? The underground train attacks in London, 7 7? Four underground trains, a bus. And um, I was, I was uh, in charge of an organisation called COBRA at that time, where I was in charge of intelligence in COBRA, which is kind of our National Crisis Management Committee. It's equivalent to, um, to let's say, the White House Situation Centre, where President Trump sat when he invited the US forces to dispatch Mr Soleimani recently, which was probably the best justice he's ever likely to face. Um, And we we were reeling after this attack. We we, we, we hadn't expected We didn't have any intelligence on it. Just before we went into our first meeting of our crisis management committee, I got a phone call from the chief of station of Mossad in London who said to me, anything you want, any assets you need, any resources you want, any intelligence, anything at all you need, just pick the phone up, tell me, and it will be done. Because with immediate effect, London is number one priority for Mossad in all of our work. Which again was incredibly reassuring uh, message from a very close ally. I've I didn't get any message from the French or the Germans. <coughs> I did from the Americans, from the CIA. But um, that again it's an example of our closeness as, as a nation. I was in hospital. Just one second. I was in hospital I wasn't in hospital myself. I've never been to hospital myself. But I went into hospital to visit a soldier. Um, or only, I've only been in mental hospitals, but it's <laughs> another story. Here. Um, I went in hospital to visit a soldier. He was an 18-year-old guy, two legs off as a result of a bomb attack in Afghanistan, one arm gone, an eye gone. And he was there two or three days later, having been evacuated from Afghanistan to a British hospital. He knew, I spoke to him. I don't know if you've met someone who's been so badly maimed as that, but I would have expected them to wish they were dead. I've never met one that does wish they were dead. They're always really thankful they're still alive, despite the mess they're in. Um, and I spoke to this guy, and he was really thankful he was still alive, at 18, with only one limb left and one eye, and and couldn't really hear very much. You could hear a bit. But he knew that his life had been saved by the Israelis, because at the scene of the attack, he was immediately treated with a blood clotting agent that had been devised over here on, on Israeli battlefields, or Israeli... Um, science establishment, uh, which was much more effective than any other blood clotting agent, and saved his life, stopped him from bleeding to death. And that's another example, are many other examples, of the way that, uh, that we gain from our relationship with Israel. We also give from our relationship with Israel. We, we're fighting the same war. Yesterday, on the streets of Bethlehem, the IDF apprehended someone who was about to stick a knife in, I think, uh, in, into either some uh, Jewish... Uh, people that live there, or Israeli soldiers. Yesterday on the streets of London, the Metropolitan Police shot dead a terrorist who was about to stick, who had actually knifed three people in London, an Islamic terrorist. It's the same problem, for the same reason, fighting with the same tactics, and we share those tactics, we share intelligence. No country in the world, I don't think, who has a problem with Islamic terrorism has not benefited from Israeli intelligence. I was in um, Australia about... in in uh, uh, Sydney, I don't like to say it. You don't know, like Sydney, I suppose, you? I was in Sydney um, about a year ago or so, and, and the news came out that, that Israel had prevented, Israeli intelligence from Unit 8200, had pre- pre- prevented a terrorist attack on a plane that was taking off from Sydney. Um, and they, the Israeli uh, police had stopped it as a result of Israeli intelligence. Last year it came to light that there was an Iranian bomb-making factory in London which had material to manufacture three tons of explosives that was stopped by our intelligence services on the basis of intelligence provided to them by the Israelis. That story has happened in America many times and pretty much every other country in the world, including countries that would consider themselves to be Israel's enemies. Um, And so... You know, we have we in Britain, and, and I don't say everybody in Britain, but those people who understand the situation in Britain have immense admiration for this country. Everything it's done, everything it's trying to do. Um, I've got numerous other things to talk to you about, but I'm not going to. I'm going to throw the floor open to questions and answers at the moment. And the sort of thing that you might be interested in are um, my perspective on the Trump <coughs> deal of the century, um, on the, uh, the Iranian situation, the killing of Soleimani, and you know pretty much anything else you want to know about. I'm I'm like a taxi driver. I can talk about any subject at all. I don't necessarily make sense, but I can certainly talk about it. Like, or like someone who's cutting your hair. A lot of you don't seem to have your hair cut very often. Yes. <laughs> Where are you from? New Jersey. <clears throat> New Jersey. No. Um, just to kind of take a broader step. How did you end up in this room right now? I walked through those double doors there, <laughs> led by Mr. E- Ellie Weber. <laughs> You want, you want me to go into... Well, as I said, this is my yeshiva, and I like to come back and... I don't I don't show off and teach the Torah, but I do come and uh, spout my views on various things. I, I um... I've, I've always been... I mean, I am unusual, I think. I'm unusual in many ways, and my, my daughters, I've got two daughters, would confirm that. One's a psychologist, and she can see inside my rather messed up head. But... Um, I'm unusual as a a non-Jewish British military officer in someone who stands up and openly and publicly speaks out in favour of Israel in the media and in the United Nations and various other places. Um, And and the reason I do that is that um, I I have uh, the greatest admiration for this country. And I also know right from wrong, I was taught as a child right from wrong, and I know when I see lies and slurs and I consider that the the, the the lies that we get in the United Nations, the media, the universities and so on, are part of the greatest slur campaign in the history of the world, designed to bring this country down. And, you know, the the Arabs, starting in well, the 30s, really, um, and particularly after 1948, the Arabs learned that they couldn't defeat the Jews here by military action, either by conventional military action or by terrorism or anything else. So what do they turn to? They obviously continue the terrorism, of course. because goes without saying. It's the language they best understand. But they, um, they, they use the media. They use the law. They try and uh, isolate, vilify Israel and turn the world against it. And they've been very successful at doing that. Um, and I know that's wrong. I know the reality over here. I know what happens over here. And so I basically made a stand. And it's partly because of the things I mentioned before my own experiences of the benefit we get from Israel and partly because uh, I do see Israel as part of the West and I do believe that the campaign directed against Israel is also directed against the West as a whole and I do believe we should stand and fight together Um, and so that's really, I mean as a result of that I get a lot of, as Ellie mentioned, I get a lot of, am I allowed to call him is he here, he's gone, he's in disgust he left, am I allowed to call him Ellie, or is he Rabbi or what is he? No. Um, Ellie. The Ellie. The Ellie. Okay, the Ellie, As the Ellie mentioned, I, I get a lot of, a lot of anti-Semitic, uh, even being a non-Jew, I, I, I benefit from anti-Semitic hatred and, um, in various different forms, and direct also at my, my family as well. But I'm, I'm pleased with that, and I, I know it's a very flippant thing to say. If you're Jewish, and I know you're over here, you're hopefully not subjected to too much anti-Semitism. Although in this part of the place, I know that can be pretty rampant sometimes. A friend of mine called um, Ari Fould was killed not far from here. Um, But it's it's a bit of a flippant thing to say. But what I mean by that is if I'm annoying people who hate Jews, it means I'm annoying the right people and I'm saying the right things, which gets into their head and they don't like it and so they attack me for it. I'm also on an Al-Qaeda death list, which again is something I'm very proud of. Um, because those people who draw up these lists are people who I want to anger by my actions and by my words um, and really that—I mean that's a short it's quite a long answer but it's also a short answer as to why I'm here today yeah um, as a British citizen do you
0: see Jeremy Corbyn um, as a one man uh, sort of movement and what he represents against the Jews or is this a rising of uh, new forms Anti-Semitism in Britain—that
1: even now that Jeremy Corbyn has lost his power, much of, much of it—should the uh, English jury still be concerned about? Yeah, good question. We um, we've got a long, a long honourable tradition of anti-semi- anti-Semitism in England. I mean, the the um, I met I met a guy in uh, it was in um, Haifa not long ago who had come over here on the Exodus as a child. And um, you, know, you all know what the Exodus is. I mean, I don't want to have to teach Jewish Jews His, Jew, Jewish Jewish history as well as language the three, and the Torah. Sorry. The three Jews that
0: got killed by the Britons.
1: Second in Exodus. Yeah, I know. The Exodus. <laughs> the, the Exodus. Um, he was he was on the Exodus. He was apprehended. He was sent back. They were sent back to France where they'd come from. When they got back to France, they refused to get off the ship. At, the ship they were taken on in France. And so the British Foreign Secretary at the time, who was a Labour Party, same as Corbyn, a Labour Party Foreign Secretary called Ernest Bevin, a notorious anti Semite, he said, Right, if they're not going to get off there, we will just punish them. And what do they do with them? They send them to Germany. This is immediately after the Second World War. These were all, or virtually all, survivors of Auschwitz. They were to be sent to Germany. And not just to Germany, but this guy I was talking to was sent, they went to Hamburg, and they were then sent, he was, he was sent with others, not all of them, to Belsen. Which, of course, was a notorious German concentration camp. That's the kind of thing that was going on back then by an anti-Semitic British politician. Today, he was just—he just hated Jews. This guy. Today, anti-Semitism is, been, is, is in a resurgence, not just in Britain but in Europe. Why is it? Anyone know why it is? Why it's why it's resurging? Yeah. Because
0: maybe uh, now you can reshape anti-Semitism as not against the Jews but against Israel, and so it's much more comfortable. To this point, Israel instead of being the with Jews much more
1: accepted. Where do you come from? I am
0: Israeli. My parents oh. are English.
1: Oh, okay, bad luck. Um, <coughs> where are they from?
0: Uh, both from London. One from the, one from Golders Green. One from St John's Wood. Oh,
1: no. The Ghetto. <laughs> Very good. Um, I'm allowed. To say, I'm allowed to say anti-Semitic things. Um, well, I'm not really, but oh well. Um, <laughs> The the uh, you're you're right you're right about the use of anti-Zionism as a kind of proxy for anti-Semitism because it's unfashionable to be anti-Semitic in the, w- the same way it's unfashionable to be racist in any other way in Europe these days but it is not unfashionable to be a- anti-Zionist anti-Israel um, and so those people who are anti-Semites use anti-Zionism as a proxy for anti-Semitism. It's the same thing. I mean, in my view, anti-Zionism is, is anti-Semitism anyway. Um, but anyone know why it's? I mean, that's that's a kind of a, a method of anti-Semitism, way, But anyone know why it's caused? Yeah. I think it's
0: well the rising
1: Muslim
0: population in yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Post-colonial guilt.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the, that's a good good point. There is an ele- there is certainly an element of that. Yeah.
0: The, the uprising of the nationalism. In Europe.
1: Right. Right. Extreme
0: right. Sorry. Extreme right. The internet hmm? revolution makes everything a
1: lot more anonymous. People can say whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. There is an element of that. I, I yes. Islamic liberation. Right, as you say. Um, the the uh, all of the, I think all of those things are, form part of the problem, um, and the extreme left. So you have you have. The extreme right, the extreme left, Islamic immigration, um, <coughs> traditional uh, anti Semitism. I know people who are anti Semites who don't know why. They've never that Jew in the life. But it's kind of their family from, from years back have been anti Semitic. And also the internet, the internet, the use of social media, which is, in, in many ways, it's a great thing, but in many ways, it's a very evil thing. It does allow the spread of this kind of filth um, <coughs> around the, around the, the, the communities. But I, th- I would say, from my experience <coughs> and from my knowledge of the fact, by far, by far, the greatest reason for it is what you said and what you said, which, which is um, <coughs> Islamic immigration into the UK or into Europe. And most Muslims, I'm not anti-Muslim, I know many, many Muslims who, I've fought alongside many Muslims, I've been awarded medals for protecting Muslims in different countries in the world. Um, but I also know <coughs> that most Muslims hate Jews and hate Israel and they're taught from the cradle to do that. Um, and that leads, of course, of course it leads to uh, you know a, a cohesive anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli feeling throughout the Muslim immigrant populations in Europe, including in the United Kingdom. And <coughs> why does that lead to broader anti-Semitism? Because politicians like Corbyn, Corbyn's an anti-Semite anyway. He got, had a bad experience working for a Jewish tailoring company in, uh, in, London, in East London when he was a young man. Um, but it, it wasn't anything bad that happened to him. It was in his interpretation of the way that company was operating. That created his anti-Semitic spirit. But more than that, it was expanded and magnified by um, <coughs> his and other left-wing politicians' desire to garner the immigrant vote. And the Muslim vote um, is predominantly on the left. And they foster that. They want more of it. And Tony Blair, when he was prime minister, opened the gates to greater immigration because he wanted immigrants to come into the country, particularly from Muslim countries, who would support the Labour Party and give the Labour Party a permanent majority. So you've got a party there that, um, that has an inbuilt sympathy towards um, Islam. And and, um, what's the word anyway? Sympathy towards Islam and anti Israel as a consequence because they want to garner their support. And um, the second element of that is fear, appeasement, appeasing them for for the purposes of fear because they. um, we, We have the rise of Islamic terrorism. I mentioned the latest Islamic terrorist attack in London was just yesterday by somebody who'd been released from prison having been charged and convicted of 18 previous. uh, 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 Anti-terrorist attacks. He was released, I think, just a very short time before he went and did this attack. Um, So that—that is—that is, is, you know, and and that applies to both sides, particularly the left, but it also applies to the right as well, who fear and want to appease um, Muslims in the hope that those among them who want to carry out terrorist attacks will be dissuaded from doing so. We all know that won't happen. It's not. It's not a re- realistic goal. The left and the right, I think, is much, small, in terms of pure left and right wing extremist anti Semitism, is, is a re- relatively small problem in, in Britain and in Europe. It's not, it's not, I wouldn't dismiss it as a problem, but it is relatively small compared to the other one. The colonial guilt, you said colonial guilt, the colonial guilt thing is, is also very true. I mean, you know, if you, if you go to, have anyone been to Ireland? Northern Ireland? Southern Ireland? You want to yeah. if you go to Northern Ireland where we fought British Army fought for 30 years a terrorist campaign, very similar to the I was going to say West Bank but I dare not in this room because I know you'll give me a hard time for it but very similar to the campaign that the IDF have been fighting in Judea and Samaria not the West Bank um, we know you're about to be legal as well so it's great I am um, no, long, no longer have to come into the illegally occupied West Bank um, to speak to my yeshiva but uh, if, you go, if you go there you'll find that um, with the, the conflict in Northern Ireland was fought between Catholics and Protestants, basically, and the British Army, trying to keep them apart and trying to trying to stop the terrorism and, the, and the, the rioting and all the rest of and the murders. If you go into today, although the campaign has been suppressed quite a lot now, it's still going on, but if you go into Northern Ireland today, into Belfast, I can show you a photograph on my phone that I took just a few months ago, and I was there last. Um, into the Catholic areas you'll find Palestinian flags flying all over the place and you'll find paintings on the wall of the Palestinian flag and brave Palestinian freedom fighters all over the Catholic areas go into the Protestant areas you'll find the Israeli flag flying and there's a I saw this huge great billboard a long billboard on a, on a, a fence which said we honour the Israel Defence Force and there was an IDF soldier standing there saluting us and what happened basically is that the, the Catholics, that the who were the, the nationalist or republican terrorists fighting the British for their independence, so-called, so in the north of Ireland, which is part of the UK, um, c- kind of identified with the Palestinian cause because they were, you know, they're they're fighting against imperialist oppression as well in their in their minds, and because they did that, the Protestants who were opposed to the IRA, they decided they'd be supporting the Israelis. Yeah.
0: Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, terrorism in England is the same as in Israel, and also now you just mentioned that the IRA sees parallels between themselves and the Palestinians. I was wondering to what you you thought. The terrorism here is not just religiously motivated; it's also motivated by political unrest.
1: It's a good question, and I think um, in in, in the, the IRA terrorist campaign it was not really a religious terrorism. It was it was, it was more to do with. Resisting actual, genuine discrimination against Catholics in Northern Ireland, which had occurred. I mean, you know, I don't know. 1969 probably seems to most of you like being a very long time ago. I was 10 at the time myself, which shows you how ancient I am. But um, that was when Catholics first got the vote in Northern Ireland in 1969. Not that long ago, really, compared to when most of us got the vote. Um, And. They were allowed for the first time, then also to own land and to go into the professions and things. Like that. up until then, they'd been treated very much as second-class citizens. And this IRA campaign was against that. It wasn't. Re- it was sort of because re- the whole thing is religiously motivated in a way, but it's not based on religion. It's not. There's nothing in, in the Christian religion that tells them to act like that. The the, the 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 war over here, the battle over here, I think, is far more religiously motivated. It's not about land. It isn't about um, I don't believe about politics. It's about, it's about Islam and Judaism. Um, and I'm, having studied this situation for many years, I am very much convinced that the Palestinians, their leadership, I mean, the Palestinian people as a whole, they all have many different beliefs, but their leadership, both in Fatah and in Hamas and various other factions, they, they don't have any interest in having their own state, no interest in their own state. They had the opportunity of their own state many times. The first time they were offered the state, that w- there was a vast area they were offered, was in 1937 by the Peel Commission in the UK. They were offered their own state, then they rejected it. And since then, many times, right up until the Trump deal of the century, um, they've been, they've been <coughs> offered their own state. They've rejected it every single time because they don't want it. What they want is the end of the Jewish state. That is all they want. They want the annihilation of the Jewish state. Uh, and, and that's because of the Quran. The Quran requires it of them. Um, not only that, but from what I have
0: understood, it's also a very comfortable situation for them, for the leadership of the and all that. Since they're getting a lot of funding and they don't really need to give it any, to anything because the Palestinian country is a really eligible thing. So they just keep
1: the funding for themselves. So. I agree with you. That, you, that, that, that fuels their kind of rejectionist attitude. To I totally agree. And also, they're important because of this conflict. If this (coughs) conflict wasn't going on, who would be a Basby? I
0: I was wondering wondering if you could tell us about any um, situations that you've been in since you've been in war and other capacities that you've been in, Mm -hmm. where um, your moral and ethic values have been challenged and how you've dealt with it.
1: Um, A good question. Many times. Many times, because it, in a conflict situation, it, you're, you're constantly being challenged in that way, and you've got to make judgments, um, which are sometimes kind of alien to your instincts, yet are in line with the law. And for just as an example, um, uh, the the um, you know one of the one of the bal- one of the kind of balances you have to make is. Are you willing to? Are you willing to risk the lives of your own soldiers in order to save the lives, let's say, of civilians on the other side? And I've been faced with that situation many times in Northern Ireland, in the Balkans, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and other places. Um, and it's a difficult question. I mean, there's no, no one. Te- no one can tell you the answer to that. You can't, you have to decide yourself at the time on the basis of the facts. But one thing. You know, even if, if you, 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 know, you, might, you might say, well, it's really important to save the lives of these innocent civilians because we are interested in maintaining their hearts and minds and their support for us. But on the other hand, my soldiers will know if I've basically thrown their lives away and they're not going to follow me into battle or they're less likely to do so. And also, I need them. I don't, you know, if, if, if five of them get killed, that's five I've got less to fight with, so it makes me less able to achieve my mission.
0: I was also like I was just pointing to. Do you have any like specific stories that that are
1: like like good? Or not not good, just exactly. You want me to tell you war stories? Yeah. <laughs> I can I can give you many examples. I'll, t- I'll, te- I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one. Um, I mean, it, the, the reason I, I was, I'm slightly struggling to tell you an example of what you're talking about specifically because it's something that just happens all the time in your. Um, in your military service. I'll give, you, I'll give you one example of what you're talking about and then I'm going to talk, give you an example of something that's sort of related but slightly different. I was in Afghanistan, as I mentioned, 2003, and I gained intelligence. I, I set up a joint intelligence unit between the British and the Americans. We had an American Marine Corps. Um, we all know that the British Army is the finest army in the world, don't we? Second army. Oh, okay. I thought there'd be someone who had a different view. Um, yeah. Others would argue the 10th finest, but anyway. Um, the, the US Marine Corps is a very, very fine fighting organisation, and they had a very, very good intelligence team that were doing nothing in Kabul, so I nicked them from the Americans. And we used their intelligence organisation with my combat power and my money. I had a lot of money um, in unmarked notes and all that, um, which we could use to buy cars, to rent houses, do all sorts of covert surveillance and buy weaponry, etc., that weren't, wouldn't be identifiable and all that sort of thing. Um, and um, the, this Marine Corps intelligence team identified a, a terrorist cell an Al-Qaeda linked cell in uh, an apartment in Kabul and it was in an apartment block known as the Russian Flats which it was been built by the Russians when they were running the place and um, they, they, the intelligence said they had weapons and they had explosives and they were preparing to carry out a terrorist attack against NATO forces in Kabul <coughs> or against civilians I forget which and um, but they didn't we didn't have fo- they couldn't provide photographs of these people so we knew that where they were we knew exactly which apartment they were in we knew what they were planning to do and I had to make a decision as to how to deal with it what should I have done any, anyone got any idea it is actually a moral dilemma in some ways sorry Bomb remember. it? See? Full of civilians? No, the house. Yeah, but th- this is a big skyscraper. Oh. We're not sky, but a part, you know, sort of 20 floors or something. Apartment block, packed full of civilians. Every small apartment designed for one family had four or five families in. And they were all, with the exception of these terrorists, they were all civilians. So bombing, I'd like to, have, but it would, it would. I'd have been in prison now. Yeah, guy and the keeper. Raid the apartment? Sorry?
0: Raid the apartment? Raid the apartment, right?
1: Okay. Good. Yeah. And and the problem with that? Anyone think of any problems with raiding the apartment? Yeah. There
0: could be movie or There could be you know someone hiding a mm-hmm. apartment across. Yeah, that's so a possibility.
1: Any other problems with it? Yeah. You just get you just <coughs> your troops killed. You do, yeah. Any other? They're willing to. But the troops are there for that purpose in a way. You know, they're, they're not there to get killed, but they are there to, to be risked. Suicidal. Those Sorry. Those people are suicidal. Suicidal, yeah. Like, yeah. Well,
0: Getting back to the suicidal thing, if they are, they can either blow up themselves in the whole operation, but then maybe you can also
1: put just billions at risk. Right, you're close to what I'm trying to get at. And uh, all the points you've made are right, but the, the the my main concern, my main consideration, was not that they were going to blow themselves up. They could have done, but that's something you face every goddamn day, and it could happen any time. Not, not just themselves, if they're blowing themselves, right. they will kill the civilians. Right, yeah, yeah, and that, that could happen with the, the your soldiers. Soldiers. You're right, you're right, and that is a, that was also a consideration. My main consideration was not that though, it was a concern, but was getting in there and when you get, if you're facing armed terrorists, you've got to shoot them, or you've almost certainly got to shoot them, and if you start shooting in a jam-packed apartment block with flimsy walls, then you risk killing, those bullets don't just go into the wall, they go through the wall and kill people on the other side of it, so you risk killing a lot of people, that's the big concern. Um... What were the alternatives? Did I have any alternatives apart from to send a raiding team in to go and get them? Yeah. Sorry? Say that again.
0: Cure the building block around. Right. Wait for them to
1: make the first move. Yeah. The problem with that is it's a good point. And other people said that the problem with it, we didn't know who they were. We didn't know any photographs of them. So the, people were coming and going all the time. So, um, that wasn't a feasible thing to do. We did we did mount surveillance on the place. We tried to see inside the flat from outside, but they put curtains on the windows so we could identify them and then get them as they came out. We, we, there was nothing we could do to, 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 to get their identity.
0: Is, is there way you could have uh, put a surveillance on the front door of the apartment, like put a camera in the hallway or something? would know.
1: Uh, so you'd you know them coming out of the apartment. Right. No, you, no. Yeah, that was again an option that we considered, but it was we 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 discarded it because we recognized that they could they would potentially be able to see us doing that and identify the camera. It could. It was. It would be very difficult in those circumstances to do it covertly. But it was. It was an option. Yes. Any others? To lure them out. Lure them. How? I, I don't know. Installing a person that is like. Um. Like uh, I'm in guessing, like uh, as I remember. <coughs> yeah. So you send a kind of some kind of agent in yeah. to bring that. up. Again, w- we we thought about that, but it wasn't feasible to do it. The intelligence source that gave us that information wasn't in a position to do that, and he was the only person that could have p- potentially done it. So, I, I what what happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. I faced the dilemma. I made a decision very early on that we were going to send a raiding group in and get these people. Um, and I briefed the British ambassador in Kabul that that's what the plan was. And he w- I had no boss in Afghanistan. My, my boss was in London, 3,000 miles away, 5,000 miles away. Um, so no one could tell me what to do, really, except from London. And if you're sitting in London, a nice office in Whitehall, you don't necessarily feel in a position to tell someone on the ground how to conduct a battle. And, but the ambassador said, you can't do that. You cannot do that. The risk is far too great. You've got to let them just come out. And I said, "Yeah, okay." So I'm taking a, a risk of killing civilians versus a certainty they're going to come out and kill either soldiers or civilians. And it was a, it was a, it was. A, and everyone else, everybody else, said to me, "Don't do it." My staff, the, we had special forces units out there as well. They didn't agree with doing it. Um, no one agreed with doing it except me. I was the one that thought I should do it. And I I got the the ambassador got onto the foreign office in London and he uh, told them to tell my boss in London to tell me not to do it because the ambassador didn't have any authority over me Um, and that's what happened they phoned me up and they said we gather you're going to do this the ambassador's got enormous concerns are you really sure you should be doing it and I said yep I'm certain I should be doing it and they said well we think you should reconsider and I said well are you telling me not to do it, or are you advising me not to? As we're advising you not to. I said, fine, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so we did it. We did it. And as luck would have it, and it, the, the, there is an element of luck in all these things, we went, we, we we got the elements of surprise. We smashed our way into their apartment. We captured them. We didn't shoot. No bullets were fired at all. We didn't have to. We captured them. But they could easily, as you say, they could have rigged it for. Um, booby traps or they could have had su- suicide vests or whatever, or they could have started shooting we could have had to start shooting, they could have shot our guys there were so many different things um, but my, my judgment it's a, it's a tricky one but my judgment was I, was I was prepared to risk my soldiers' lives and risk the lives of civilians there in order to stop an attack that certainly would have uh, killed people
0: um, So I guess like, with, with all the like, political correctness the world um, that's like pervading western society these days do you ever find that um, like with your beliefs and beliefs that are shared by most of us here that you know even people in like the conservative establishment have tried to censor you and how do you fight back against that and succeed in the face of people trying to censor you and and, and you know sentiments that you know most people have but you know just the political correctness is trying to silence
1: them yeah you just have to stand up and fight against it and you have to be prepared to take hits as well. I've I've been attacked numerous times and accused of all sorts of hor- horrible things. And you know we we see we see not every day, but we see very frequently in social media we see um, people whose careers are ended by comments they made, which what you and I might think are sensible. There was a guy recently, who's a Brit- an ITV news reader, which is one of the main British TV news programmes, who. Quoted Shakespeare on some tweet, and was immediately fired. I'm not going to go into the detail of what he said didn't say, but he was accused as a result of this quote of Shakespeare of being racist. And instead of standing up for him, his company, ITV, fired him. So he's gone. But but you know that, and that's the problem. I think there's a chap you may have heard of a chap called Douglas Murray. I don't know, has anyone heard of Douglas Murray here? Yep. Anyone know the name? Yeah. He's. I'm afraid he's a Brit, um, but he's a good Brit. Um, and he if I would I recommend reading some of his books in which he he tries and not books only but articles he tries to rally people to stand up against this situation where we're constantly under under attack I mean in Britain we had um, we had a we had a kind of fantastic movement which brought about Brexit we then had a period of huge problems and then we had a <coughs> massive majority delivered to the Conservative Party which the Conservative Party is not that far right, it's in fact more centre than right, but at least they're more on the right track than than most politicians in the UK. Um, and that's, that. those have changed the kind of, it's a bit like, I mean, the, the Brexit thing occurred just before the Trump thing. And it's the same symptoms. It amounts to people being sick and tired of being shoved around by politicians who are only interested in the rights, let's say, of a a terrorist who wants to, you know, wants to butcher us all, rather than the rights of people who are potentially their victims. And I think that, political, that, political, uh, that, that kind of view has uh, given increased political power to people who are more realistic about it. So I don't really have an answer to you, but I, you know, I, I have a motto, a personal motto which I would urge you to take up as well, which is keep attacking, because um, attack is the best form of defence. And if you're, if you're annoying people or getting them to want to kill you, then you're on the right lines. Um, can I just ask before I take the question, how long do we have? 15 minutes. 15 minutes? Okay, if anyone needs to go, obviously, then please feel free to do so. I'd quite like, before we finish, I would quite like to get a group photograph if I can. Um, but let's, let's uh, so 3 o'clock, is that right? It's 5 o'clock. 10 more
0: minutes of questions, go to
1: the Say
0: again? 10 more minutes of questions, Okay, can no okay.
1: Uh, done. Deal done. Can I- I've already you've already you've been interrupting me all the time, but go on. Um, off, uh, Are you anti-British? No. <laughs> um,
0: it's about the plane that uh, the Iranians shot down. Right. Um, I don't know. My opinion was uh, obviously by purpose, but that's not the point. The point is why did every, all the other nations be quiet about it, and after three days of being here... your opinion uh,
1: was that it was on purpose. Yeah. yeah. They really shot it down on purpose. Yeah, but
0: I'm asking why everyone were quiet about it. why
1: there wasn't an outcry. Yeah. I I I think there was a bit of an outcry. Are you saying there wasn't as much as there would have been another? other Yeah. Like, um, for example, Russia
0: or the states were just totally quiet, quiet
1: Yeah. About it. Just as, out, out of interest, why do you think it was shot down on purpose? Um when you are such a big plane like that, you can see where it came from. You can see that it came from say, around, uh, air, um, uh, the airport. So. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there is a thing but called not that dumb, <coughs> there saying. is a thing called incompetence, and um, and I, I hate to say this, but because I have, I'm a huge admirer of the IDF. I mean, I know do all of you go into the IDF? For some of you, most of you. All the Brits. All the Brits. All the of us. Sorry. Only the best. Best so the Brits <laughs> right. and the Aussies, Aussies yeah. and the Israelis. Yeah, okay. But so how many of you? How many of you have or will be in the idea? Okay, quite a few of you. So I mean, anyway, I have immense. you you're Israeli, yeah, and you're not in the idea, not going in the idea. I am. You are. Okay. Um, too young. Too young. How old are you? I'm 19. That's not too young. I was in the army at 17. But I, I have I have enormous admiration for the IDF through, through my own experience of dealing with them, seeing them in action, working alongside them. But one thing I would say about the IDF is they're extremely lucky about the enemy they fight. Um, yeah, right. Okay. Well, it's a fair, luck. Luck probably often is a help from God. But um, so I think you know Iranian incompetence shouldn't be underestimated. And um, I I personally don't believe that it was shot down deliberately. I think it was just pure incompetence. But I also believe that, that one of the reasons that the Iranians let those planes continue to fly when they knew that they were carrying out rocket attacks against the Americans, which could invite, and they thought would invite, retaliation, was to use those planes as human shields so that they... They would deter the Americans from retaliating, as planes were still flying in the sky. That doesn't answer to me the question as to why the airlines themselves allowed them to fly. But um, I think, I think as as to the uh, the the, the outcry, I didn't feel there was a, I didn't myself feel it was too muted compared to other air air accidents. I think people, most countries understand. I think. Um, that, that these things happen, that accidents happen. Let's not forget the, the, the Americans shot down an Iranian jet in the Gulf during the tanker wars. In, was it? Anyone know when it was? 1980s? Ninety- 1980s, yeah. It was something like that, uh, they, which they thought was an incoming either attack aircraft or missile. So these these mistakes do happen. Um, but, I mean, I just to, Sorry, I'll, I'll take more questions in a sec, but the... the I believe that the action that, that, that then led to that was absolutely the right thing to do. Killing Soleimani was the best thing that ever happened to him, and one of the best actions that President of the United States ever Isn't that took. Before? Sorry, Isn't that before? beforehand, yeah, and it was it was it was a great thing. I, when I was working in our Prime Minister's office, we had uh, we, we had a lot of British soldiers being killed by Soleimani in Iraq and some in Afghanistan as well by his proxies. And I put forward a plan to the Prime Minister to, to take military action against the IRGC in relation to that, which could have included uh, killing Soleimani as well. It did, the Prime Minister didn't go along with that as it happened, but fortunately we, we, we then found in, in the current leader of the United States someone who was prepared to kill a person who's been responsible probably for more violence than most other people on the surface of the planet today. Yeah. With
0: the surge of hyper-partisanship within Western politics, what is your sort of... Plan, or just what do you think the best plan is to prevent you know bias toward Israel in general? Because as as pol- more politicians that are more to the extreme left and to more to the extreme left are getting elected, especially in America, you know, there's large sentiment against <coughs> within actual politics, not just people in general. So what what do you think is the best way to combat that?
1: It's a good, it's a good and difficult question. Um, I mean, I think, I think. One, one thing that I do believe, and I, I was I was involved in discussing. No, I didn't have an, an active role in this late the deal of the century, um, which has made great television. It's, it's television. it's probably a television programme anyway, isn't it? Deal of the century. <laughs> no? it must be a reality. If not, one of you can make it into one. A... Trump is a reality. Trump is a reality. <laughs> um, but <coughs> I think the the I, I was involved in discussions with the people involved in making that plan for, 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 since it began. And one of the things that they felt, and one of the reasons why they carried out this peace process, which, which many people advised them against, was because they, they recognised that, that Trump and his team are extremely pro-Israel, extremely, and we, we all know. And I was here for the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem, and I know what a, a phenomenal event that was, for the recognition of Israeli sovereignty of the Golan Heights, and now for the, this deal. And, and they, wanted to, they wanted to change the kind of paradigm that Israel exists in while Trump's in power. Whether that be for one term or two terms, their, their assumption, of course, of one term. And so they wanted, they wanted to, re, to, to change the facts on the ground, as it were. And for example, this basically it says that the, you know, this plan says it, it's not going to result in peace. I'm sure you know that as well as I do, because as, as I said before, the Palestinian leadership don't want peace. Um, But but what this plan does, the the most powerful country in the world, which has a veto at the UN Security Council and many other powers, says Israel has a right to this land. This is not illegally occupied territory we're sitting in now. This is Israel's sovereign territory. And the maps will be changed to reflect that. And world opinion will be influenced by that. For the first time ever, we've had eight Arab countries which have supported an American proposed peace plan. Never happened before. Now I know it's not. I say it's not going to change. It's not going to result in peace. But I think changing the reality on the ground by the Trump administration is a major, major step forward for for Israel. Yeah, a, a democratic uh, government that replaces Trump perhaps could do it, what it can to reverse it. But it's going to be very difficult to reverse that. So I think concrete action by politicians is the best thing. Uh, it seems uh, in the
0: world consensus today that. The battles in Iraq and Afghanistan were a mistake. So, so history seems to be writing itself. What would you say
1: to that? No, I don't think they were a mistake. I think they were the right things to do. I think fighting the invasion of by the U.S., Britain, and other allies of Iraq and Afghanistan, I think, were the right thing to do. Even though there
0: were no weapons of mass
1: destruction, and there were. They, they weren't. The, the invasion didn't take place because of weapons of mass destruction. It took place because of fears of. Uh, Saddam Hussein's support of Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda had just shown itself in the attacks on 9/11. And you believe there was a
0: connection between Saddam? So there was
1: definitely a connection. Between. It was it was it was relatively small, but it was thought at the time I was involved in this whole thing. It was thought at the time to be a lot bigger than it actually turned out to be. So it was a mistake of intelligence. But nevertheless, he, um, Saddam was still he had connections with Al Qaeda. He allowed Al Qaeda to do certain things in Iraq, and was looking to encourage them to do more. He was sponsoring terrorism around the world, including paying people to blow up Israelis here in uh, in Jews here in Israel. Um, And and so that you know at that time in the immediate aftermath of 9 11, President uh, Bush feared that Al Qaeda being aligned with Iraq would be such a potent uh, weapon, which would be a huge problem for the West. And he decided to invade Iraq on that basis. Now I think the decision was right. I think the execution was wrong, and I would say the same about Afghanistan as well. I think the way we did it wasn't what should have happened, but we should have done it. Yeah. Last
0: um, question. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So, with radical uh, Islam being not just an Israeli problem anymore, but now we see it's you know a world problem, you know, going on. in have you you know, have uh, in Europe right now. Uh, why does there seem to be such a hesitation to combat it in a uh, open open way? Combat. That uh, Islam, uh,
1: Islamic terrorism on a global uh, and especially again, it's, it's 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 in some ways. it's Someone, someone over here who said um, about the anti-Semitism, who spoke about imperial guilt, yeah. Um, in some ways, it's it's to do with that. I mean, in Britain, you can't. I mean, if you, if you call Islamic terrorism Islamic terrorism, you are an Islamophobe. You hate Muslims. It's not that you're identifying a real problem and then trying to deal with it. It's that you hate Muslims, and that's all to do with in Britain. It's all to do with colonial guilt. I was, I, I mean, I ever, when I was at school, I was brought up not not by my family, but by my school, by the media, by all the other institutions <coughs> we go to, to be ashamed to be British. We di- we didn't play our national anthem, we didn't fly our national flag. We were told we were awful, evil people because of our colonial past, and. That that has blossomed since then, even bigger. That was years. You know, I'm extremely old man. This is many years ago, but it's it's grown hugely since then and, and grown on itself, um, which is why it's such a big problem, not just in Britain but in the, in Europe and much of the Western world as well. And of course, we see the people that are trying to attack us now. They've got a reason for it. We, you know, we have caused this situation. We brought it about. And that people talk about you know, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan as causing the terrorism against us. It didn't cause the terrorism. It caused the terrorism no more than uh, our attacking Normandy on June 6, 1944 caused the Second World War. That was a reaction to a war that was already going on. So it, it is, I think, more than anything else, colonial guilt. I'm not, I, I, I'm, if anyone wants to hang around afterwards or can hang around afterwards I'm happy to discuss anything further.